Hello, everyone. I'm Harvey Brownstone, and today's guest has written one of the most compelling and emotionally turbulent books I've ever read. Her book is entitled Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai, and it opens our eyes to a little-known community of over a thousand people living on the outskirts of Mumbai, India, at the edge of the massive Dionar Garbage Mountains. These people, living in small shacks and tents, are trash pickers. They make their living by foraging through this massive dump filled with torn rags, plastic, broken glass, crushed cans, and even toxic waste, looking for anything they can sell so they can live another day. This nonfiction book is a deeply moving love story with unforgettable characters set against the backdrop of this real-life harrowing world in India of excruciating poverty and squalor in the shadow of enormous wealth. I'm pleased to welcome author, journalist, and activist Samia Roy. Samia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Samia, I must tell you that your book is an absolute revelation and it left me completely dumbfounded. Can you tell us how you first discovered this community living at the base of the Dionar Garbage Mountain? Sure. Um, I was a journalist for many years, uh, for a while in the US, then in India, then I came. Um, and in 2010, I left to start a nonprofit because I used to write about financial inclusion. And I left in 2010 to start a nonprofit and we worked in microfinance. And in 2013, we began getting waste pickers from Deonar uh, in our office asking for loans. And it was very clear that. I was, that, that they were different from any other borrowers we'd had before. They had cuts, they had bruises, their walk was bent. And I became immediately this dark fascination uh, that I had for them because I would ask them that you can only pick what you can with your hands. What are you going to do with our loans? And, you know, they would make this seem like a place of great opportunity. There's, there's this quote in the, in the book where this woman told me the very first time, like, do you think trash is ever going to reduce? Like, never. You know, we are in the great sunrise industry of this world picking trash and so uh, I said well take me there show me show me what you do show me your house show me your life and it became increasingly clear to me that while I, I do in visit many slums this was unlike any other because while they were making some money it was as if the mountains and their lives were intertwined they were living on them, they, the mountains were in their house, they were on the mountains, the mountains were cutting them, bruising them, and yet their houses were made of trash. They were eating what they found there, they were wearing what they found there, foraging for a treasure that may have been lost in the city. And it became clear to me that through the two of them, which is the waste pickers in the garbage mountains, the story was about us. Um, because we made this place. Uh, we made these mountains. People like us who were sending trash out only to be invisible in this corner were making this place and were making these lives. The DNR landfill site was created in 1897 and stretches over 320 acres. I'm told the life expectancy of the people living there is 39 years old because of all the illnesses they get and the fires and the accidents and the territorial gang disputes how did it come to this, that so many people are so trapped in that terrible place that they can't find a better way to live? Where else would they go? I think it's a, a, 
you know, we hear about shining modern India. This is a time of great economic growth and boom. Uh, and yet there is no place in the city and in India's modern economy for people like this. Um, it's not like they can work in a call center. They can see it from the garbage mountains, but they cannot work there because they don't have a great education. They don't have you know, they don't know English, they don't know, they don't have nice clothes. So they don't have opportunities to work in uh, that modern India that we know of. Like one of the waste pickers told me that he tried to get a job as a, a, a driver for one of those new taxi services. And so he made it through all the tests until they realized that he couldn't follow directions on GPS because he couldn't read and write. So if if someone was calling him, he couldn't read the instructions. And he was so crushed and embarrassed that he couldn't get that job. And so I would say that there is, it, it's, a, it's a sign of the lack of social mobility that people are here. Those who can't make it in the city are sent to live here or end up living here. I know that you spent quite a long time getting to know the inhabitants of the DNR Garbage Mountains. And I'm interested on the impact on you of knowing these people? Were there important lessons you learned from them about the meaning of life? Certainly, I would I've known them for about eight years and I've seen them going through so much. And I was talking to, uh, you know, the main, one of the main characters in the book is Farzana and I was talking to her father, Haider Ali, the other day and we were just discussing how courageous his daughter is. That she wears it lightly uh, you know, she'll just shrug her shoulders and say, well, what else could I do? Uh, but there's so many occasions that I felt that if I was in her place, I would just want to curl up in bed and not get up for the rest of my life. And yet she's constantly pushing herself to walk, to move ahead, to get married, to be with someone, to have children, to, you know, to work, propelling herself towards that life that she wants to have, rather than just one that she was probably destined for, or that, that even I thought at one point that she was destined for it, um, you know, for, for, for difficulties, for disabilities, for so many not nice things. And yet she has propelled herself into a somewhat happier life. Well, what the book really brought home to me was that when you have nothing, you know that true value comes from the love of a family and community. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, one, one would think you see 16, this is a question that came to me constantly when you walk the mountains and you see there's 16 million metric tons of trash lying there, which is basically things that we thought give meaning to our life. Um, like, you know, shoes, we buy shoes, we buy clothes, we buy nice food, dessert, thinking, okay, this is going to make me somehow happy or satiate me. And yet it ends up here and we remain empty. So, so does, does that sort of, you know, the lack of a better word, material, this wealth or material desire make us happier is, is a question. I mean, I, maybe not. And, and la I, the lack of having anything, does that make relationships also weaker? Does that make us morally compromised? Sometimes, and I have shown that on some occasions that complete poverty and desperation has made them do not nice things, including, I'm not flinched away from that. I have shown that there are instances where they've like abandoned their families, um, done kidnapping, crime, that does happen. But on many occasions, there's such, in spite of the lack of wealth, there is also this tremendous bonds of family, of love, that, that bind, they would go to any extent, they don't have any money, but they will go to 
any extent to protect their children, their loved ones. You know, that often made me wonder that would maybe wealthy people wouldn't do that. And, you know, that, that while I wouldn't necessarily say that they're directly proportional, that only poor people have close bonds with family, but certainly I did see tremendous bonds of love and family. And you see people going above and beyond. When they don't have money, they're literally putting their bodies online to protect their family. Yeah, that's very true. Now, your book is nonfiction, so we know that the characters in your book are real people. We get to meet four families, but the main focus of the book is a girl by the name of Farzana. What made you to decide to center the book on her life story? Actually, all the four families were equally reported. Uh, I must uh, admit that at different points, they've all been the main characters of the book. Uh, but then in 2016, so many things began happening to Farzana that it became clear to me that, you know, she was she was glowing through the drafts, really. I, I avoided writing about her for a while uh, because it was traumatic for me to ask, traumatic for her to tell. And so we, we, I must tell you, we have spent months just together, but not talking. Uh, once I was on her way to her house and she, so many times actually I was on, her, on my way to her house and she said she didn't want to meet me uh, because I kept asking her the same questions, difficult questions, traumatic questions. She didn't want to recall them. And so I remember once I had uh, bought her ice cream and I went back home with melted ice cream, not having met her, having come back halfway. But at some point she realized um, without my pushing that 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 this had to be told, that I was not going anywhere. And so sometimes in the least expected ways, she would tell me, do you know, that day, I have a very clear memory of it. That day, I remember what I was wearing. I had full consciousness. I have full memory. Here's what I was saying at that time. And here's how my brother soothed me. Here's what my brother said to me. It was dialogue was coming out, clothes, the, that visual memory, oral memory. She had everything. It's just that she didn't, it was difficult for her to confront and deal with and difficult for me to ask and to channel through my hands. I found your writing style fascinating, Samia. The book is nonfiction, but it reads like a novel and it's obviously very well-researched. And I'm wondering whether the fact that you're a journalist and not a novelist is the reason you have such a unique writing style. I don't know where it comes from. I, I, it, thank you. Thank you for you know, saying that. I, I, I may not be the best person to tell you where it comes from because it was almost unconsciously. I just stayed true to the material and what came came. The only thing I can tell you is that I had left journalism and stopped writing for six or seven years. Uh, and then came back to it with little, little bits of research, adding up, adding up, adding up to make the story. So I, uh, I should, maybe what I should say is that the story was also stuck in me. I was also addicted to the story. And you know, in journalism, what happens is that we have the harness, um, you know, of structure. Your story is only so long, you need not go deeper. But with, with a book, you can write as long as you want. Uh, and so you, you, you cannot stop researching. And I too was addicted and I could not stop researching. I went down crazy rabbit holes. Well, the impression I got from your book is that people who live at the DNR garbage site really believe that they will find something valuable, like a huge diamond or an emerald, that they will be able to sell and make a lot of money and get out of there. Did you ever meet anyone who actually had that kind of luck? No, no. 
I actually met these people as um, I first met them as a microfinance uh, lender, a non-profit microfinance lender, and so it was their finances, their upward mobility, their businesses that concerned me at first. And I would, all of them would tell me they knew somebody who had found gold, somebody who had found diamonds. You know, Bombay has a huge diamond market. About 90-95% of the world's diamonds are polished here. And so they would tell me, oh, diamond dust is lying around in the garbage somewhere. And, you know, uh, emerald, there's a palm-sized emerald that somebody found. And somebody moved out, but it was never them. It was never them. So it was probably like an urban legend, that hope that kept them going, that ephemeral hope that kept them going for generations. Some of these people are second, third generation waste pickers, still hoping to find that treasure. In that way, they're not wrong for many of us, right? Exactly. We're all hoping to find that big gold ring. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tell us about the court proceedings to try to close this garbage site. The case seems to be going on forever. Yeah, 26 years. So I, as I said, I had no background in the law or in any particular interest in, in, in law, except that the waste pickers would tell me sometimes that there, there's been a case going on for a long time to close the dumping ground. And then in 2017, um, there was a court judgment that said all construction that added space in the city was banned. And that's when I began going to court and I became fascinated immediately because it seemed that this intractable problem was at the edge of being resolved. And so I attended two, three hundred hours of proceedings and, my, and also uh, went through a long protracted process to get documents for the previous 20, 22 years of the case proceedings. And it was the same. It seemed as if it had been at the verge of movement, at the verge of closing down, but had not yet closed down. So you've attended 300 hours of court proceedings. Can I assume that you don't have a very good impression of the court system in India? No, I actually have a great impression of the court system because I was uh, very fascinated by Justice Abhay Oak, who was the presiding judge at the time when I attended court hearings. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, he was actually elevated to the Supreme Court of India. Uh, He was an extremely uh, idealistic, well-meaning judge. I could make out that he was trying to do something. And yet the administrative tangles, legal tangles were so immense that there has been some movement, but even today dumping is going on and the court case is going on. Harvey, I know you have been concerned with access to justice and spoken in, uh, about it so beautifully. And I have just a couple of lines from my book which talk about access to justice that I just quickly wanted to read out to you, if, if that's okay with you. Yes, please. Uh, also, while speaking to young students, Justice Oak says, when you connect with such litigants, uh, you learn what life is about. After becoming a judge, I realized the real challenge before our legal system is not docket explosion, but of docket exclusion. He went on, there are certain deficiencies in our legal system that large sections of our population silently suffer injustice. While the unending pile of pending cases clogging Indian courts had often been spoken about, Justice Oak suggested the bigger problem was that people like Farzana and the inhabitants of Karwale remained invisible to the courts that decided their fate. And I think it speaks to your concern with access to justice and your years-long advocacy for better access to justice also, and that is what I saw in court. 
That was a very eloquent expression of the realities of the justice system for many people. Um, but what I will say is that I, the courtroom provided me an opportunity. While this is a very micro look at the garbage dump, he was presiding over cases on noise pollution, on air pollution. So just to see how this was also a larger story for development in at least in my country, but possibly in yours too, or all over the world. About you can pass any order, but implementing the order is a whole other thing. What happens on the ground uh, is a whole other thing. And also in court, that, that feeling of movement, but it's at the uh, trembling almost, but not, not completely coming, not coming in full measure, development, movement, um, the going of noise pollution, air pollution, the garbage dumps, all of it is like almost improving, but not improving. Samia, you wrote that you came to see the mountains, and I'm going to quote you here, as an outpouring of our modern lives, of the endless chase for our desires to fill us. What did you mean by that? Yeah, when, many times when I walked the garbage dump, I walked by myself, uh, and I would just see things that had probably been sent from the city, uh, like high-heeled shoes. I myself may have on occasion bought them uh, to feel they feel something in me, some kind of um, desire in me. Um, uh, cell phones, lots of cell phones that, that people felt that just this new model would make them a new person, a shiny new person, make them more desirable, uh, make them cooler. Uh, so lots of things that I thought made, made people feel better about themselves, about their their self-image and also how they appear to others. When you're carrying a new model of phone, people think you're cooler than, um, you know, suddenly that you've become cooler. And yet in, in two months, as you know, phones get outdated. Uh, India is the world's fastest growing cell phone market and the world's second largest second, uh, cell phone smartphone market. And so you can imagine phones are getting outdated every two months, landing up there on the garbage dump. Uh, and so what does that mean for that self-image that you had when you were carrying that new phone? You don't want that old phone anymore. <laughs> you want the new phone. And then you feel that will douse you. Uh, somewhere else I have a line that says aspiration, loneliness, everything was to be doused with things. And yeah, those... I really understand that. In a way, you can tell a lot about a society by what they throw away. And as I was reading the book, and getting deeper into it, I realized there was a theme here about ur urban overconsumption, excessive consumerism, planned obsolescence. We're living in this throwaway society without any concern for the environmental and the health implications of what that's doing to society. And then you've got these waste pickers there living there having to deal with the consequences of our overconsumerism. Yes, absolutely. I, there were so many times I watched them bring, I was watching like the, almost like an anthropological experiment. What were they bringing back? And to me, it was a reflection of our society. So many times it was, say, a collection of ripped jeans that we may have thrown away for being a bit too ripped. Uh, and they were patching it up and reselling it in the secondhand market. Um, I have a photograph of a little girl uh, who had found a palette of blush on makeup and she was, you know, very carefully putting it, you know, applying it on her cheek. So they are the, 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 the end of that funnel of our consumption. New kinds of foods, takeaway foods, foil, 
foil boxes full of foods that were never seen before, but that were now there. And they could not understand. You mean to say this 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 cup had coffee that was for like two hundred rupees? I cannot imagine that. So it gave me an almost inverted view of the city and of our lives that had made these lives. What does your book tell us about life in India? I mean, I would say that it tells us uh, uh, something about life everywhere. In the environmental movement, this is called not in my backyard. Uh, but I would say, in a more somewhat more philosophical sense, that that you know, this, the way that we hoard things, thinking that they provide you know some kind of meaning in our life, and then send them away, thinking that they are invisible, but that nothing really goes away. It's there. Typically, people think that oh, this waste is going into oceans, and oh, some fish are eating it, or you know, oysters are strangling on it, or something. But there are people. I think that this provided an opportunity to show that there are people whose lives are made of this. That our overconsumption is also creating these lives, and so what we use. and what we throw away defines us uh, and what we throw away also we feel that this no more makes us whole and so we need to just throw it away but so therefore that also we think defines us what we throw away also in a way defines us and so that then begs the question that what gives meaning to our life is it things is it relationships and then to build and rebuild our lives when we you know through that conversation of what defines us what doesn't define us what gives meaning to our life i think that's a conversation that i would hope my book does encourage um, in among readers samia you received grants from the rockefeller foundation's bellagio center and the kerry institute for global good to help you research the book and it's clear that you wrote the book to shine a light on the appalling conditions that these people are living in what are you hoping that the book will achieve I grew up as a reader. I grew up reading a lot, actually, and so I uh, I hope that it's a trend that it that it moves readers more than anything else. I hope that it moves readers. It takes them into this world that is a fully created world, um, where there are also birthday parties and teenage romances and you know joy. There is like sunlight and rain and you know the whole the works. Uh, and and when you emerge from that world, you realize that. Yeah, okay. There's something for me to think about, and you are a little bit changed, a little bit transformed. What's been the reaction to the book in India? <laughs> It's been a good reaction. People, I think, in India, certainly there's a growing rea- uh, realization of uh, landfills and uh, waste and pollution. Uh, I think this uh, concern with air pollution has been growing over the last few years. I also talk in the book about how in this budget in uh, March. the government announced a 40 billion dollar uh, plan to mitigate air pollution and garbage mountains like this one so i do hope that that this is going to shrink very soon would you like to see the book made into a movie Actually, if you ask me honestly, I would love to see the court sections made into a movie. Also, apart from the lives of the waste pickers, because I saw such wonderful, amazing drama in the courts, and there's a very famous movie set in Bombay in made in Marathi called Court, uh, which, when I was walking the corridors of the courtroom, I felt like I was in a real life version of the movie. So I would love to see it. Yes, as a movie, both regarding the waste pickers in the Dawish Mountains and also about. court proceedings. Well, if it's going to be about the court proceedings, it better be a mini series because it's likely going to take more than 2 hours for a movie. 
and also all the different i certainly i my concern was the garbage mountains but there's so many amazing interesting cases that i know you dealt with and you 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 yourself have been so concerned with access to justice which is also what the court case was showing that while their fates were being uh, adjudicated in court they were nowhere there i know from the research you've done is the situation at the dnr garbage mountains unique or are there other places in the world where people live at garbage landfill sites actually while i was even researching this book there was a uh, there was a garbage landslide uh, at addis ababa and i think more than 100 people had died um, there was a garbage landslide in colombo and certainly people were injured and if, i don't remember if they died or not so this is not unusual by any means it it may or may not be a somewhat heightened version of what happens elsewhere uh, but but it's not unusual at all in manila smoky mountain in manila was actually one of the best known garbage mountains uh, and there were waste pickers who lived there there were all kinds of accidents there um, with regard to waste pickers so this is not unusual and even in the developed world while you don't see waste pickers you certainly see waste mounting as a huge problem uh, how do we deal with this where do we send it there's a very famous case in new york city itself where once a uh, waste was put on a barge to be sent away for disposal but nobody would accept it and so the barge stayed floating off new york city for i think weeks or months and it felt like an urban legend to me until i actually spoke to the person who said it was true and she had dealt with it yes it is true it's very well known Now Samia you're living in Mumbai and you're a journalist and an activist can you tell us about your activism and your future plans So I am a, I would say I'm a social entrepreneur I run Vandana Foundation uh, we work on livelihood related projects which is microfinance uh, etc in Mumbai but uh, also in the rural areas of uh, our state where we work with farmers widows of farmers who committed suicide so different uh, we give them low interest loans to grow their businesses to do some hand spun hand woven cloth that we make into shirts and sell so different things like that and i actually also intend to continue writing about this i am writing a few journalistic pieces related to my research on waste and landfills uh, and i uh, would love to continue doing that Well that's wonderful. I can't wait to read what you write next. I I I'm just so happy that your publisher reached out to me about your book so that I could utilize my platform to bring attention to it. Thank you so much Samia for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor. Our guest has been journalist, author and activist Samia Roy. My name is Harvey Brownstone. Thank you to our producer Steve Silver. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Be sure to check out more interviews by Harvey Brownstone on this podcast channel.